Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. As we gather here today, I acknowledge that I am greeting you from Toronto, and that this land has, for many millennia, been the traditional territory of Indigenous nations, including the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabek, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. I want to recognize that our teams across North America today are on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations. We honor and recognize the first people of our territories in the ongoing contributions of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples to the vibrancy of our communities today. As part of BMO's purpose to boldly grow the good in business and life, and our commitment to build an inclusive society, as a bank, we have a unique opportunity to address one of the most pervasive barriers to economic and social inclusion in Canada, the supply of affordable housing. I'm excited to introduce Sharon Hayward-Laird, BMO's General Counsel and Executive Committee Leader for Sustainability at BMO Financial Group, who will walk us through today's announcement. Her remarks will be followed by a discussion with some very special guests, which I am honored to moderate. Sharon? Thank you, Jonathan, and welcome all. As Jonathan said, the supply of affordable housing in Canada, really in communities of all sizes and all geographies, is a pressing issue for a number of stakeholders, including government, NGOs, and for us at BMO as a purpose-driven financial services company that calls nearly every community in Canada home. And of course, no one is more deeply affected by this issue than Canadians who struggle to afford housing and newcomers who arrive every year. It's a complex complex issue requiring focused and broad-based solutions and everyone needs to be at the table. It's also an issue where we as bankers have a role to play in driving solutions. Today, we are taking a step forward. BMO today announced a $12 billion commitment to finance affordable housing over a 10-year period in support of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation's National Housing Strategy and the goal that all Canadians have an affordable home by 2030. BMO's funding will be mobilized towards the development or refurbishment of housing that meets accredited affordable housing definitions in regions across Canada. Financing will support the purchase, development, renovation, and maintenance of affordable housing, social housing, community housing, shelters, and housing for vulnerable populations. Part of the funding will go toward financing affordable housing options and infrastructure projects that increase access to housing and promote economic development for Indigenous people, both on and off reserve. BMO has had a leading presence for more than 30 years in supporting long-term sustainable economic growth for Indigenous communities. We are committed to deepening that trust, respect, and the partnerships we have built. Today's announcement helps us to further that commitment too. So what does this funding, this partnership with CMHC, really mean for Canadians who are struggling to find affordable housing? It includes financing projects that build permanent, multi-use affordable housing units for vulnerable populations, funding renovations and retrofits that preserve existing affordable housing units while enhancing energy efficiency and providing financing that supports Indigenous communities to support housing, infrastructure projects, and economic development. We are proud to support CMHC's vision while aligning strongly with BMO's purpose to grow the good by committing $12 billion in financing to economic and social inclusion through affordable housing. Investing in housing for all Canadians means removing barriers that exclude so many from a better life. In short, it's about creating a more inclusive society for all Canadians. And with that, I'll hand it back to Jonathan. Thank you, Sharon. Let's shift to a discussion with a very special panel of guests to unpack the barriers Canadians face when it comes to housing, the impact of today's announcement, and why it matters. Today we have with us Romy Bowers, President and CEO of Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, 
Chief R. Donald Markle, Tayendanaga Mohawk Council, Mohawk, Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte, and Mike McGann, CEO of Interrent Reed. Thank you again for joining us this, for this very important discussion today. We encourage audience members to submit questions via the chat box, and we'll do our best to address these questions after the panel discussion. Let's get right to our questions for the panel. Romy, over to you first. What is your initial reaction to BMO's affordable housing announcement? And importantly, how do you think it will impact Canadians and the communities in which we work and live? Oh, hi, Jonathan. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me to this very special event today. And I just wanted to say that uh, I was so very pleased to hear that uh, BMO was making this very meaningful commitment and investment in affordable housing. As, as Sharon mentioned, um, housing affordability is such a critical issue for so many Canadian families today. And uh, as we all know, affordable housing is really a key determinant for good health as well as economic and social well-being. And uh, I believe and CMHC believes that affordable housing is absolutely essential for creating a Canada that is truly equitable and a place where everybody can fulfill their potential and really, really prosper. Um, CMHC uh, is focused on housing affordability for all Canadians, uh, but we recognize that the housing system is very complex with many actors and stakeholders. And it's for this reason that it's absolutely critical for the private sector to step up and make a difference in their communities. Governments alone cannot solve the challenges associated with housing affordability. And um, today's announcement is so exciting uh, for, for us at CMHC because it demonstrates how partnerships can change the lives of so many people uh, in need of safe and affordable housing. So thank you uh, so much, BMO, uh, for this commitment. Thank you, Romy. And, and building on that, Mike, I, as a private sector actor, why is it important from your perspective that we build more affordable housing? What do you think the impact will be on Canadian communities? Um, it's it's obviously very, very important, uh, important issue. Um, Really, like when I look at uh, our communities, we, we want them to be healthy. And uh, obviously, having housing is just a, uh, a basic need that everybody has to have. So um, it's very important. Um, we, I acknowledge what Romy just said. We really need to kind of work together. There's a lot of different uh, pieces to it. Supply is the big, big, big issue. Um, and what BMO's done, this is a fantastic announcement. Like that's amazing what BMO's uh, put forth here. And I think this is great. And it'll help hopefully grease the, uh, grease the wheels here as uh, we can get more supply on, uh, on, on board, especially with the amount of record. Uh, I think we're looking at record amount of immigration coming into Canada. And we really need to align uh, immigration with housing. So this is a fantastic announcement. And so Mike, how do we encourage more supply of affordable housing? Um, again, kind of like, I'll, I'll tell you, we really need to work together. It's all supply is, is good supply. It basically it'll end up trickling down um, and which will make it more affordable for everybody. So the big, the big things I see on the, on the uh, I guess on the uh, private side is um, you, we really need to cut the red tape. The red tape that we see that, you know, it takes so long to get buildings built um, and, and, you know, when you've got, like, we're really trying to concentrate on more on the transit-oriented areas because that's just better for the city's infrastructure. That, to me, should be really, you know, it should be almost rushed through the, um, uh, you know, potential uh, permit application so we can get things built a lot quicker. And I think, really, to be frank with you, is that what they should be doing is adding a little, uh, give the private, the private sector, the developer owners, uh, the ability to, you know, if you supply more affordable housing, that you get more density. It, it comes down to the, on the private side, it's really risk return. Um, but I, like, it's so important, affordable housing. D just uh, for a note, uh, my private company has been managing uh, nonprofit housing for the last 20 years in, in Ottawa, about uh, close to 400 apartments. So I, I know the need, I know how important it is. And we really need to work together, government and and obviously with the banks, which is fantastic. Again, with BMO's done, this is this is a really great announcement. And Chief Miracle, turning over to you, could you describe for us some of the unique challenges that Indigenous people face when it comes to housing? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm very pleased with the announcement that the $12.3 billion from the bank over over 10 years. Um, the um, 
the housing situation in all First Nations, especially the large, largely populated First Nations, there are there are five in the province of Ontario, Mohawks Bay currently being one of them. There's such a backlog in, in, uh, in housing and uh, suitable housing uh, that it meets the affordability and also the accessibility and, uh, of, of the people that are involved. Um, we have 100 applications on file, and I had my housing manager um, give me the, the income profile on those applicant applications. Like A lot of them are under $50,000 a year, so they don't really meet the affordability for a mortgage. So there's a different type of housing needed for a lot of those folks. Um, I think it's important to understand what the need is um, in, in, in Canada and also in Ontario as it relates to housing and First Nations. So a few years ago, Canada, uh, Indigenous Services Canada partnered with um, the AFN and uh, they provided a million dollars to do a, a data gathering exercise across the country on housing and infrastructure related issues. And we I chair the Chiefs Committee on Housing and Infrastructure for the Chiefs of Ontario. And um, so the technical, uh, the on-reserve housing and related infrastructure needs technical report was completed in July of 2020. Uh, the data was collected in 2018 and 2019 nationally. I asked uh, our Chris Hoyos, our director there, to uh, sort out what the, what the situation was in Ontario. So there was 102 First Nations in Ontario, of 133 participated in the survey, 309 nationally. Um, the First Nations um, Information Governance Centre uh, collected, the, did the data warehousing. They did the, uh, they had the privacy and security for the study. They consolidated the data and into a national data set. And they did the statistical analysis and interpretation of the, the, the information gathered. Um, the Ontario First Nations housing uh, reserve, on reserve housing and related infrastructure needs technical report was completed in 2021. And the data from the same AFN survey completed in 2018 includes the 102 uh, First Nations who responded from First Nations in Ontario. The um, respondents were housing managers, 59.1%, uh, infrastructure managers, 16.8%, uh, and bad administrators. And nearly 40% of the communities conducted a formal housing assessment. Over two-thirds, 68.2%, .2 do not have asset management systems for housing. About three-quarters, 76.8%, uh, do not have asset, asset manage, management systems for housing and related infrastructure. About 41.4% have, have a capital plan to address their current housing needs and infrastructure needs. So in Ontario, there were uh, 25,215 uh, housing units uh, were reported by the respondents across the province of Ontario. 16.5% uh, of the total housing units are currently six, Section 95 uh, CMHC agreement housing. 36.4% of the housing units are band-owned, uh, including rent-to-own, and 59.9% are privately-owned. The condition and replacement issue. 50.4% of the 25,215 housing units um, are 25 years, uh, are, are under 24 years uh, old. 38.7 are 25 to 50 years old, and 16.8 are, are 50 years or older. 19.2% for, of the housing units need replacing. 33.1% of the individual housing need minor repairs. 33.92% need major repairs. An average of 71.7 .7 additional servicing lots are needed for each First Nations community. The average cost of servicing a lot is $43,649. The estimated total cost for servicing the lots to meet new, uh, to meet current need for across all communities is $478,872,198. Meeting the housing needs. The total number of housing that's required to meet the current housing needs across Canada is 8,645. The average number of additional housing units to meet the community's current housing is 75.7% on an average new units per year. Considering the population growth, 
The estimated total number of housing units to meet the required housing need in the next five years is 7,659 units. The average number of additional housing units needed to meet the community's housing unit in five years is 68.4. The cost. At, uh, at an estimated cost of $250,000 per housing unit, which could be more because of the impact, the total amount needed to meet First Nations housing needs in Ontario is approximately $2.1 billion. At $250,000 a housing unit, the total amount needed to meet First Nations housing in the next five years is $1.9 billion. That's for a five-year period. The cost for servicing the lots with infrastructure, water, sewer, housing, like what happens in a municipality, is $478 million. $872,198. The total cost for addressing the future and current housing and related infrastructure needs for First Nations in Ontario is $4.4 billion. So that's that's sort of the challenges that First Nations are, are facing in terms of fixing the houses and building new houses, uh, building places that are, are suitable for people, both in terms of affordability and barrier-free. Uh, to repair the units, um, there's a number of businesses uh, in the community that have that build houses on and off reserve. They employ our members, and so there is a huge economic impact. We have a lumber uh, uh, business in the community that uh, that also benefits uh, the community. They're employed the, the trades, and also contractors in the uh, in the general area that do the the water and sewer and uh, the, that type of infrastructure. So the um, Currently, um, I guess the first question that uh, I was to ask is, can you describe some of the unique challenges that Indigenous people face when it comes to housing? Well, first of all, uh, racism is still an issue in this country. And when I was a, a boy, um, you, no Indian could borrow money from the bank um, for anything, for a car or a house or anything, any bank, anywhere. And um, so members were forced to go to like companies like Beneficial and Niagara Financing and Avco that were around at the time to take out high interest loans and try and compress uh, um, these loans into uh, to pay them back in five years. So you had houses that were uh, never finished. Um, the department at that time uh, provided a house that was 20 feet by 24 a subsidy. There was never enough to go around. There were always huge wait lists. Um, accessing housing was very political uh, in terms of uh, they'd lobby the chief and the council for a house and whoever carried out the best lobby oftentimes got, got the unit when it was a grant system. So the lack of the challenges are the lack of space to build new homes. Um, the addition to reserves policy um, is lengthy. It's cumbersome. It takes years. And this creates an impediment to the land to build houses on and to develop infrastructure. So the financial institutions of Canada need to put pressure on Mark Miller and, and Carolyn Bennett to, to make this uh, addition to reserve policy more efficient and in shorter timeframes, there's too much red tape. Um, acquiring new land continues to be a problem uh, due to the lack of capital and out, the outdated claims policy and municipal and provincial governments are involved in that. Can, there's a lot of delay that can be created there to get addition to reserve, uh, to have the space to build houses on. So there's a lot of First Nations are short of land. Uh, this would be like Six Nations, um, Gunawagi would be near ur large urban centers. This would be a very pressing issue for them. The status of the reserve land is, uh, is uh, governed by the Indian Act and we do not hold the land in fee simple. And accordingly, we cannot pledge that land for security for debt. So the bank then looks to other guarantors of loans, which usually is the First Nations or sometimes a ministerial loan guarantee. And so all of that has to be in sync for this program to work. The option of converting reserve land uh, to fee simple, um, in, it can happen in some rare instances, but many, but it's a non-starter for many of the First Nations communities because it presents too great a risk of losing the reserve land uh, for good. And if there's a default on the loan and uh, 
then the First Nation wind up losing, you know, a part of its territory. The lack of infrastructure and, ass and assessments on funding is needed to ensure that there are sufficient service lots to build new houses. And this is particularly pressing in large First Nations communities. And this has been a common theme that has been expressed by the delegates who participate in the Chief's Committee on Housing and Infrastructure. The price for servicing lots due to COVID-19 has gone up from 80,000 to 120,000 for water and sewer type extensions and road and hydro and that sort of thing. Funding is also needed to, for survey, a soil sampling and environmental assessments in some cases. So you, you have the, the, the lots are ready to build and develop because you have to go through the species at risk to get federal funding. The lack of uh, capacity for proposals to design shovel-ready projects, many First Nations lack that capacity to put forward housing proposals. These committees often don't receive their fair share of housing funding, leading to further inequality among First Nations. Funding is also needed for First Nations to prepare shovel-ready projects to advance and qualify for funding opportunities as they arrive. And we see this in the, uh, the CMHC Rapid Build Housing Program because uh, CMHC and Indigenous Services Canada are not operating in tandem and in sync. There's a shortage of housing inspectors. So uh, a few years ago, the Chiefs of Ontario had the housing inspector unit, and uh, th that was kiboshed. And uh, there, were, there, there were First Nations inspectors that you could call from there. They'd come out and inspect your houses. They were close by. That system worked much better than the way it's working now. Training and employment programs, because obviously if you're going to build a house, you want to make sure that it, it meets the, uh, the Canada uh, building code so that the house will last a long time and without a lot of need for, for maintenance. So building it right is very, very important uh, to the construction standards. The training and employment programs, many First Nations communities do not have enough trained professionals to complete house, house builds using their own First Nations labor. So there could there needs to be partnership with the uh, the labor, the the entrepreneurship for young young people to get them involved in carpentry. And so this will be done through maybe a partnership with community colleges where it would lead to uh, they could get their carpenter's license. We've done that before here at Mohawks to be acquainted. As a matter of fact, some of them did go on to start their own their own uh, business and a very successful business. So training and employment, employment, tra tra employment programs for the youth are underutilized because there's a lack of capital to build the houses. So to coordinate, there's a, there's a coordination role and all the players need to be in sync. So usually when one government has money, the other one doesn't. So it doesn't, it doesn't uh, jive together. Uh, these programs are possible to address the lack of human capital and to stimulate First Nations economy. The second question that I was asked to ask on, you've been working on the housing issue in your community for a very long time and made a lot of progress. What is the end goal when it comes to the issue of housing and how can banks and other private sector organizations help you advance that goal? So I thought I would sort of um, give you some stats about our own community. Um, we have, um, completed eight CMHC uh, uh, Section 95 housing units. Um, we received $968,557 a year in rent to help pay those mortgages. And uh, we currently have um, $4.7 million on the books with the CMHC Section 95 as of March 31st. And uh, Rami can tell you that the Mohawks, the Bay have never defaulted on any of our loans. Uh, we built uh, in, in 2000, uh, uh, 25 years ago, we built the, started with the CMHC uh, Section 95 and built the 25-unit 20, uh, Elders Lodge that was paid off in, in January of 2018, a 25-year mortgage, never a payment defaulted. And so... Uh, uh, we've got a very good track record, but also back in 1971, uh, my cousin uh, was uh, Chief uh, uh, William J. Brandt, and then uh, uh, another uncle, uh, Chief Earl Hill, was, um, they were chiefs at the time, and um, they started uh, 
using the uh, capital money for for how it, for it was allocated for the subsidy housing to create loans at six percent. Uh, so so the, the fund would build have a community fund to build houses. So before because people could not borrow money. If you were an Indian on the reserve, you couldn't borrow money from a financial institution because the ba- the bankers thought Indians wouldn't wouldn't pay their mortgage. But little did they realize, a lot of people didn't when when they built a house off the reserve, they didn't tell the bank they were Indians, and they paid their mortgages off. So the bank never ever knew that that they were already lending money to Indians and they were paying. So that program grew, and with the capital infusion, and so that's one of the tools that we have in the community. Um, we currently have 271 uh, mortgages. Some of them were monetized by by the bank. The Bank of Montreal took it took them over because they could get a better interest rate on their loan at the bank than the six percent. So they monetized their mortgage, and so there's 271 mortgages. These are MBQ mortgages. Uh, uh, Twenty uh, for a total outstanding of 22 million 108 thousand seven hundred four dollars and 37 cents as at the end of march this year and so there are ter- currently 23 though are uh, that are in arrears for about 1.6 million and our staff work with those with the people that are in arrears and overall of the 300 mortgages that we've only had a problem with maybe two or three that just didn't pay and uh and so but the the there's a very complicated court process uh, it can cost ten thousand dollars to evict somebody by the time you go through the court process so the there needs to be a better judicial system to deal with with arrears and taking over property and so there needs some to be some work done with the attorney general and the court system on that and so the uh the bank of montreal loan, loan guarantee program we started that um about maybe um six or seven years before about 15 years ago, uh, we started that program with uh, guaranteeing mortgages. We said, we'll try it. We, we'll try it at a million dollars and see how it goes. Then we increased it up to five. As, as people started paying, we could see how it went. And it's went very well. So currently, we have 107 Bank of Montreal mortgages um, for a total of 14, uh, $14,724,145.19 is owed at the end of March. And uh, currently there are two in arrears, about 3,583.08. And um, what I would recommend that the bank um, send us a report when maybe on the, in the second month if somebody's in default. Um, uh, uh, the one person's about a half a payment behind and the other one is, is a couple of payments behind. I don't know if that was COVID related or not. Um, if we'd like to know the reason why the people are in arrears, obviously your, your collection people will work with those people. If you could just send a, keep us in the loop as to what is the reason they're in behind, because if, it's, if their income was disrupted, that maybe there's some COVID assistance uh, we could provide to uh, to help them get caught up if that's the reason. But we don't, we get a statistical report monthly, but we if there's arrears, we need to know the reason for it. So um, that's pretty much Perfect. I, I'm I'm going to just appreciate it, and I, I think it's a good point around. I would say the ability to have that feedback loop. Uh, you know, I think one thing that we believe is really important in working with you know communities like yours is how do we have a open dialogue to make sure that we're providing the right support. And so, appreciate that suggestion as part of so, it. Um, so anyway, I also the, think. Uh, the, the, the construction of long-term sustainable housing and the provision of repairs for existing housing to meet the long-term needs of the communities. Uh, construction and provision of repairs that must ensure that First Nations have access to safe, appropriate to geographic and cultural needs and available where they re- reside, whether in the north, rural or remote uh, communities. So you need different types of housing uh, in the north because of the permafrost. And we don't know how long we're going to have permafrost on this planet, but with climate change, but it looks like it's uh, dissipating quickly. So there are effects of climate change and where people build with flooding and that sort of thing. It's not a good idea to, to finance uh, mortgages when you know that there's there are people are rebuilding in the floodplain. So the long-term sustainable, sustainable funding of First Nations led low barrier shelters, safe spaces, transitional homes, second stage housing and services for First Nations who are homeless or near homeless, dealing with food insecurity and poverty, who are fleeing violence or have been subject to sexualized violence and exploitation. 
shelters, uh, transitional housing, second stage housing and services are appropriate to meet cultural needs and available whenever, wherever First Nations people reside. So these services are needed in the community. How can the banks help work with the communities to create solutions to provide mortgages without requiring the land to be used as collateral? Provide a combination of grants and loans to income First Nations who would not otherwise be able to afford a home. Monthly payments need to be low enough so that ODSP can afford it with minimal support from the First Nations. Attend a meeting with the Chiefs of Ontario Housing Committee and Infrastructure to hear the feedback and develop a joint strategy in support of First Nations. That, those are the recommendations. Very much appreciate those recommendations, Chief. Um, maybe, Romy, if I go back to you, given part of BMO's announcement includes increasing access to quality housing for Indigenous peoples in Canada, can you tell us about CMHC's Indigenous housing strategy? Uh, absolutely, Jonathan. And I, I wanted to first thank uh, Chief Miracle for his comments. I think uh, he provided a lot of really great uh, insights about uh, this, the housing situation in his community. And I also want to thank him as uh, as an important partner of CMHC in terms of, I think, uh, the relationship uh, between CMHC and his community go, go back uh, quite, a, quite a number of years. So I wanted to acknowledge that at the beginning. Um, with respect to our Indigenous housing strategy, um, as you know, our aspiration is that by 2030, that everyone living in Canada has a home that is affordable and that meets their needs. And we recognize that uh, we can't achieve our aspiration if we don't address the urgent uh, housing needs uh, faced by uh, Indigenous peoples in our country. And um, uh, Chief Miracle outlined uh, some, uh, you know, some very important facts about his community, but maybe I can just sort of supplement that with some uh, more facts at a very sort of macro level. When we look at uh, Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples across Canada, uh, we know that uh, about a third of Indigenous households are living in very overcrowded conditions, and 25% of the housing on reserve need very major repairs. A core housing need uh, is much, much higher for Indigenous people uh, when you compare the, them to the rest of the Canadian population. Indigenous people are 10 times more likely to become homeless. And there's about a 15% differential between home ownership rates between uh, Indigenous uh, families and other Canadian families. So these are, it gives you a bit of a sense of the, uh, the scope of the problem. Um, CMHC is committed to working closely with Indigenous housing providers to, provi to, to develop and to support programs that meet the very unique uh, cultural needs of Indigenous people. Uh, we recognize at CMHC that uh, many past government housing policies have not worked. And Chief Miracle mentioned the level of bureaucracy that exists at CMHC and within government, and, and this is a serious issue that uh, I'm committed to ad addressing as well. Uh, at CMHC, we are absolutely committed to supporting housing solutions that are developed by Indigenous people for Indigenous people because Indigenous people understand what they need the most. And uh, as a firm, we are committed to advancing uh, reconciliation with Indigenous people and providing better support to our Indigenous partners. And uh, to guard our efforts in this respect, we recently uh, created a new Indigenous Advisory Council uh, composed of uh, external housing experts. And uh, we are following the guidance of this new council uh, to really co-create uh, a reconciliation action plan to guide a review of our existing housing programs, policies, and also business processes. And uh, we hope that by doing this, that uh, we will consider the unique needs of Indigenous people to, and really address the barriers that exist within our own company to accessing our programs and services. So lots of work to do, but uh, you have uh, my commitment to really advance this uh, as we go forward. And Romy, as we talk about the scale and the scope uh, that, that we're thinking about, you know, Chief Miracle talked about the billions of dollars needed over the next five years in Ontario alone. What is your vision of how the private sector can best support this work and can best help uh, bring affordable housing to life? Gosh, that's uh, there's just so many things, you know, I think uh, providing access to financing, as Chief Miracle mentioned, is, is super important. Right. Uh, there's um, there is uh, systemic racism 
in our in our financing system, and we have to uh, do what we can to to break down those uh, you know centuries old uh, legacy of uh, racism in how we actually extend credit to Indigenous communities. So that's one. Uh, another one, and again, this is something that Chief Miracle mentioned as well. There's uh, many, um, you know, developers, builders, tradespeople within Indigenous communities, and I think it's great if the private sector can uh, engage uh, engage some of those folks because it's uh, not only does it create uh, affordable housing for Indigenous peoples, but it also creates uh, economic uh, opportunities for for those businesses to grow as well, and. Um, you know, we're going through uh, sort of an unprecedented age in terms of the acceleration of climate change. And uh, unfortunately, um, I believe that uh, Indigenous communities are going to be uh, some of the Canadians are most impacted by that climate change. And, and you know, I think we need to have innovative ways of thinking about housing. And uh, I think there are opportunities for uh, innovators in the housing space to think about how we can build housing that is more climate resilient. So those are three possible ideas, but I think the list is really endless. Thanks. Um, going to questions that we're getting in from the audience, one that I think all three of you touched on in different ways was the concept of red tape. And, and maybe, Mike, turning it back to you uh, on that, can you elaborate on the these particular types and places that you're seeing this red tape and what you see is the best path forward to remove those restrictions in a way that would support increased affordable housing supply. Again, um, yeah, the, the red tape is really happening at the municipal level. Um, unfortunately, there's a there's a lot of nimbyism. That's just a, that's just an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances. So, really, the the best way would be if you've got specific locations that you you know like. Uh, I'm looking at transit-oriented. That's just a natural, right? On those transit-oriented locations, if you could have a time limit that, do you know what I mean? That if somebody submits an application to, to build an apartment building or build whatever type of housing, that there's, a, and it's got to be some densification, that there should be, you know what I mean? There should be a maximum amount of time that's dealt with at the municipal level. I mean, that's just a, a natural thing. And also, I would say, if you to encourage affordable housing, if you supply affordable housing, will you get maybe for the you get relief on development charges or maybe some um, uh, property taxes just for a portion? And it's really about the risk return, and that's the biggest problem right now is getting supply on. It takes so long, and and I and the, and the chief mentioned it from his circumstance. It's just the whole red tape situation. Um, it, it's it's really an issue. Now, I have to say, I've read a couple of articles that uh, Romy's, uh, a couple of your interviews in that, Romy, I know that you're really um, pushing supply. You, you know that's the answer. So um, you know, I think that everybody's starting to get their minds wrapped around it, but we really need to work like it's private, public. We all need to work together to get to where we want to be. And Romy, another question that we've gotten, and it touches on something Mike said earlier, is around the you know, the pace of immigration that we're expecting over the next few years, and in particular, where we need to uh, think about housing for those individuals. What do you think the impact of, you know, that, that immigration is on your strategy and the needs of the, the newcomers to Canada? Yeah, uh, first of all, I think uh, immigration is great, great for Canada, right? We've uh, benefited so much from from our very aggressive immigration policies. And when you think about, I live in Toronto, and when you think about what a great city Toronto is and just the multiculturalism of it, it's really built on that background of immigration. So I just wanted to say that, state that right off the right off the bat. But we realize that you know when immigrants come to Canada, when they are, they uh, they actually they rent they rent their first homes. And uh, there's been uh, a lag of uh, you know, the construction of purpose-built rental in our country for many decades. And I think, uh, you know, just supporting Mike's point, I think we need to really think about why is it that uh, the when, when there is so much demand, why is the supply response so slow? And really, and again, there's not one single reason, but we need to really look at uh, what those reasons are. Many of them are at the municipal level. But I, again, it's not necessarily pointing fingers at municipal uh, officials or, or the system. I think NIMBYism is, uh, is a big factor. And, and, you know, I live in Toronto and it's, it's very difficult to build uh, purposeful rental in certain neighborhoods. And I think we need to think about, um, you know, how can we actually incorporate more dense housing into existing neighborhoods 
so that we can create opportunities, create neighborhoods where there's, you know, all kinds of different people can live so that immigrants can uh, settle in areas that uh, in the heart of the city where they're going to work. And I think we need to really uh, address that going forward as a country. Chief Miracle, uh, a question that came in for you. In, in your view, what are the best ways for banks and other financial institutions to support access to key amenities in Indigenous communities, such as medical facilities, quality education, food options, uh, the the things that support alongside housing quality of life? Well, first of all, I guess our experience has been that the, um, the, 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 uh, the Ministry of Health provided funding for the medical, a uh, portable uh, NRB, uh, portable type medical uh, building here in our community, which provides a doctor three times a week and a registered practical nurse and other other services. Um, but there's the infrastructure costs of uh, of going there. They're, they're, they're usually they don't fund the foundation. They don't fund the uh, the water and sewer connection, uh, the hydro connection, the infrastructures that to run the, for the building. So there would be financing required for that. Um, First Nations will take advantage of uh, grants because um, the government, the Indigenous Services Canada, do review our financial statements, and there is a healthy debt load that that you're allowed to have, and if uh, and you're you're you get rate you get a score. Uh, uh, by the management of the department. And so they do pay attention to the debt load and how it's guaranteed and all that sort of thing to determine the solvency of the community. So I, I think there has to be um, land claims settled quicker to generate the uh, the capital that's required to, to back up these loans. I mean, obviously, First Nations don't want to guarantee more than what they can afford to, to uh, pay if, if called upon to do so. So chiefs uh, that are responsible managers will tend to be on the conservative side with debt guarantees. There's a number of First Nations, though, that are in third-party management, and so that will uh, create a challenge in terms of uh, taking on more debt. They just don't have the affordability to guarantee loans because they're, they're overextended. And so that, that would be a challenge. But um, also the um, for the infrastructure, some of it is subsidized by the department and in terms of um, um, growth in the community. Like we have 10,215 members. A lot of those people want to build on the reserve. So they'll usually, usually the families keep the land and then they'll, they'll subdivide their property and give some to their grandchildren or their nieces and nephews or cousins. But on bigger blocks of family that that's sort of the development because there isn't a lot, it's too difficult to get land added to the reserve for uh, it can take 10, 10 to 20 years and people can't afford to wait that long. But, but yet if you want to surrender land and extinguish your title, you know, that can be done in the stroke of a pen in a week. But if you're, if it's got to come back to the reserve, it take, can take 20 years or a decade and a lot of politics and, the other thing is the um, the level of service standards for, for, for development on the reserve have not been reviewed at Indian Affairs, and it needs to be updated very seriously. Like, you know, the lots have to be uh, 30 meters. Um, and so a lot of the, because of the, there, in our community, large communities, people have built on family land. So sometimes that's hard to achieve that. But there would be lot infilling as, as the families grow and develop and build houses along the existing roads where there oftentimes would be water and three-phase power and and internet connection and all that. People will want those services, so naturally they would want to buy land to build where those services are. It's common sense. But, you know, you, you the it's too hard to get capital projects approved. First Nations are frustrated with the level of service standards that have not been updated in years. And also the cost reference manual for capital projects has not been updated in years. So really, the banks could work with the federal government to update those those tools. And I guess, is it necessary? Uh, Infrastructure Canada is much easier to work with in terms of, uh, because we, we've, we've had this experience with, uh, we're heavily impacted with climate change of floods and droughts, where there's water insecurity in the community. There were two communities got funded in Canada. Uh, one was Mohawks Bay, Quinney, our community, and the other, another one in B.C., and so because we're impacted with climate change, and so I made a uh, lobby the ministers during chief's days in the legislature a few years ago to say that infrastructure Canada needed, needed to be working with Indigenous communities because uh, 
uh, obviously the Ontario region had the highest number of boil water advisories in all of Canada. I think there were uh, 60 or 70 at the time. I think it's down to about 40 or so. Now there are still on communities on boil water advisories. So you can't have healthy housing and then, you know, it, with jug water and uh, with, with uh, cisterns, uh, it's a confined workspace. And probably uh, there are no uh, technicians to uh, sanitize them regularly. So, so the, the accessibility of safe drinking water is important to running a healthy home. It affects the, uh, the value of the home if you have to sell it. Um, so having infrastructure to service the, uh, the homes and market-based housing is very, very important to ensure the values there if you have to take over that house and sell it. Uh, the person doesn't pay their mortgage, uh, which is what the guarantee is about. So having proper infrastructure is very critical. But uh, those are just some of my comments. But there's too much red tape and on the Indigenous Services Canada. You don't experience the same thing working with Infrastructure Canada because we're, we're, we're building water lines in our community. And they trust your engineer. You have professionals. You just have to make sure you go through a public uh, tendering process and uh, furnish the license and the insurability, but there isn't the same degree of red tape working with them that, that there is in Indigenous Services Canada. It's too overly bureaucratic. And there shouldn't be um, two levels of engineering reviews done, done, one at the regional level and one at the headquarters level. Uh, it, you know, that type of duplication I don't think is necessary. And all it does is stall the projects and it's a way to manage the lack of capital budget that they don't have enough money, so they just throw it, throw money at a study, or the headquarters takes a long time to review it, so that it gets deferred to another year. And all it does is the cost of the infrastructure just keeps increasing year by year with delay. And uh, and there's growth pressures. Um, just this morning alone, I had uh, a thirty a thirty one year old person with diabetes had to have his leg amputated and he's in a third floor of a house in Belleville and can't get up and down the stairs and is wanting to know if we could help with a, with a chairlift. Of course, this is off the reserve, so therefore the programs that we deliver are meant for on reserve and the same level of supports are not there for people who live off the reserve. And so there, there's these types of uh, barriers to uh, accessible housing. And the wait list uh, in the county housing is five years. And I have a lot of homeless people, mothers. Landlords now um, are, um, uh, landlords are, are uh, giving tenants notice to move out, saying they're going to renovate. And uh, what's happening is they know because there's such a shortage of housing, they can get a higher rent for that house by not having Indigenous people on social services renting from them. So it's intensifying the, 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 the number of Native people that are homeless. And over in Prince Edward County, they have a lot of tourism that comes from all over Quebec and Ontario there. Uh, the housing over there um, is being turned into Airbnbs. And so therefore, even the restaurant workers can't, uh, they can't attract find restaurant workers because there's no place for them to live because every they can make a bigger dollar on an Airbnb and just to show you how how what's happening with the rental market at what at what First Nations experience um, in Desirano which is a town it, the the rents start at $1600 a month far more than what ODSP provides and if they're it's worse if they're on Ontario works the shelter allowances are not kept up with what the costs really are to rent uh, in the town of uh, Napanee, um, what one landlord just said he had so, such high interest in the rental units, um, he said, well, make me an offer. And so he was getting $2,900 a month rent. So it's going to the people that have a bigger income. And so the ones that are really are, are on lower can, uh, incomes are out of luck. So, so that, that, miracle, that's how, I, bad, how, how bad the situation is out there. No, I... Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I actually want to say thank you to, to you and to all of our guests uh, for joining us today. I think you know what I've taken away from this conversation is uh, one the potential for action in this area. You know, certainly uh, I'm left hearing that the the needs are far greater than what we're uh, you know aligned against so far, and the need to grow our work in this area is pretty is very significant. I think the second that I've heard is the need for a coordinated view around 
both you know what we can do working with different communities and responding directly on affordable housing, but what we can do to support that more broad need that goes with it, not just the housing, but the infrastructure, the other supports that go along with that to make uh, a home versus a, a house. Um, and then I think the third, and I, I feel like I, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, address the part of like on the policy side, the question of how do we do this faster? And what can we do working with our different counterparts to make sure that we're increasing the supports that are there and, and finding new ways to make solutions come to market and, and to address this need in a timely way as, you know, as we talk about the growth that we see, you know, it's certainly not a static problem. It's one where between immigration, between population growth, between climate change, the needs are evolving and we need to make sure that we're addressing, uh, you know, not just the problem we have today, but the needs that we have in the future. Um, very, uh, as I said before, very much appreciate uh, your time and grateful that you were able to join us and, and provide your input and your guidance on this. Um, thank you as well to everyone that joined us uh, to, to hear the announcement and to watch this panel today. We very much appreciate uh, you're taking the time to hear this discussion and, and to join us in this. And we're very much looking forward to uh, being able to deliver on this commitment. Uh, and so thank you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.